it does contain an F major seven sharp eleven. Wow. So like if you're ever just you know You've completely changed my mind on the track. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Phil, and I want to welcome you to 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and old friends randomly select an album from 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We discuss, we analyze, we laugh, we get off topic. Uh, and this week we're going to be listening to a great one, Title by Fiona Apple. So we definitely want you to play along. We're going to announce next week's album at the end of the show. So when you hear that, definitely give it a listen. You'll understand a little more about what we're talking about next week. Uh, we'll give you some hot takes, some deep dives and a selective tracks, you know, and we're going to vote on whether or not you actually need to listen to this record before you die. With that said, let's move on to the cast of characters. We've got Adam, Rob and Alan this week. If you guys just want to say hi all at once. <laughs> so, so everyone can get us. <laughs> Excellent. Phil, Excellent. I love that you said that we laugh because this is the first album I've actually cried listening to. So this <laughs> is well, this is a good. I mean, I might be the only one. Maybe I'm this just, week. Do you mean or when you were 16? Right. Oh, maybe a little of both. Actually, yeah, I, I think so. Definitely shed a tear this week. It's definitely a uh, more. It's a sadder album. Yes, it's a, <laughs> it's sad. Just in general, I mean, I'm curious what first impressions are. I mean, this is an album I was super familiar with. I I found this record when I was probably a junior or senior in high school. Uh, definitely fell in love with it very quickly. I would be remiss if I was not to mention that I definitely had a you know high school crush on Fiona Apple, probably downstream from the Criminal video. Uh, we'll just set that aside for later. But I mean, what were you guys' initial thoughts on this? Because I mean, this is a record that has always, always resonated with me, really, from the first time I turned it on. I'll go first. This is Rob here. And this was my first time listening to the record. So I was glancingly familiar with a few of the songs, naturally. Familiar with The Criminal, the, you know, Criminal, the biggest hit. Watched that video on MTV in high school. And I had heard shadow boxer you know a few times I was glancingly familiar with fiona apple's catalog i suppose in fact i listened to her recent i guess 2020 release a few times over the last 12 months and enjoyed it but anyway i had never sat down with with titles so it was all it was all pretty new to me i knew her to be you know i guess i had an idea of what to expect that she was kind of a jazzy sultry singer who played piano and i was coming in fresh and uh, i enjoyed it I think the songwriting is is strong. I think the production has a lot of nice little touches where in places where it could just be a really spare piano plus vocal kind of situation, especially given the strength of her vocals. You know, they they added a lot of really interesting things that made it uh, very atmospheric. So I was I don't want to say I was pleasantly surprised because I, I think of her as a real as a good artist who you know puts out good material just in a very general way. But I had never I'd never listened to the album all the way through until this week. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Rob. So I was familiar with the all the big radio hits. First time sitting down with the album. It's sonically beautiful. I put on headphones. I had done kind of a half-ass listen mm -hmm. on my iPhone with the speaker. And then a couple nights ago, I put on the headphones. 
It is a real treat. Uh, fantastically mixed. It has a very, I'd say, 90s sulking vibe. Like, I feel like there was like, yeah, there was that, it was <laughs> sure. a decade of the Counting Crows and everything was very, you know, emotional. So I, you can definitely see that in, in a lot of the content of the songs. I also feel it, it came on strong, it stayed on strong, and I feel like the last kind of tunes, it kind of just faded out. It, it, it wasn't super strong, but overall, great, great album. Liked it a lot. Now, what about you? Yeah, I, I think I'm more in like Rob's camp where like I, I really didn't have much familiarity with it. I was also like an MTV kid who remembers this just being all over the place on MTV. And I think because of that, I sort of like lumped this into and in retrospect, I realized this was was sort of inaccurate on my part, but I kind of lumped this into that like not one hit wonderish, but but sort of like flash in a pan MTV, you know, smash hit. So, you know, what else is there? And and I, I think I also lumped this into that like Sarah McLaughlin, Lilith Fair kind of vibe, which, you know, she was involved in that, but it, it, this has much more depth, I think. And I don't think I realized the the sort of jazz influence. And I know we'll get into some of this, you know, later on, but I think realizing that she sort of learned on, learned songs out of the real book growing up and, and really dialed into those like jazz standards. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. something that like, I, I did not really know about her. And so uh, this was a really like pleasantly, uh, I think it was also a palate cleanser from, listening to, to prodigy, you know, and, and to some extent, Paul's boutique, which, which I liked, <laughs> but you know, I, I was surprised at how like timeless this felt, you know, Adam, you mentioned that kind of nineties feel. And I think that angsty kind of vibe was there in, in a lot of ways. I felt like, you know, I was in like a bar in the seventies with, with a real smoky kind of atmosphere. And, and there was a, a sort of a timelessness to this that I was not expecting, you know, it's not a perfect album. Like I think to your point, like it's a little inconsistent for me in terms of like pacing and things like that. Very pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear you guys say that because like I said, I've been really, really familiar with this record since I was 16 or 17. And, you know, sort of, I didn't think about the Lilith Fair as I listened to it, but, you know, to that end, she's probably the only artist in that cohort that I really did like submerge myself in. And like, I mean, I listened to Sarah McLaughlin records and Adam, I listened to Indigo Girls records with you. Oh yeah. Uh, So, (laughs) so, uh, but yeah, this was like sort of a keeper for me and definitely I think influenced, you know, just the way I thought about music. You talked about two things, guys uh, talked about the sort of jazz background and you talked about the production. So, you know, I did the research this week. So some, some interesting things I think on both of those. So, Fiona Apple started, she was a classically trained piano player starting very early, like three, four, five years old. She was writing her own compositions by the age of eight. And sometime around age eight, ten, sort of just fell in love with what you guys are talking about. Sort of like old Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, the sort of like smoky jazz compositions, sort of rooted in the blues, but like... The harmony's going way outside of that sort of sort of basic one four five thing. So I mean, yeah, that's dead on. And I mean, I was sort of like looking up some of these charts, and they're not as complicated, I think, as they might sound with production and so the overall build of the songs. But they're definitely denser than you might think, right? Like definitely denser than oh, the average definitely. pop song, yeah, for sure. I can hear that. And I'm definitely seeing songs that probably had more in common with stash or uh or a nirvana song right and and there's these sort of like 90s some of it just use melodic minor in a sort of like 90s way um and some of it also i think uses 
she uses like minor thirds in a very Nirvana way, right? Like a very C to E flat. Yes. You know? Yes. I, um, I heard that. That's I heard cool, that pattern repeated you know? <laughs> on a couple of tunes because I, I think near the sure. last mm-hmm. one of the last three songs was very familiar to one of the first five or something. And I remember hearing the chord pattern being like, yeah, okay. okay yeah, sure. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I definitely agree, Alan, you sort of flag that it gets a little like it gets a little soft, right? Like it runs 51 minutes. Like would it have been a better record if it ran 45? Maybe. Right. Like if you cut one song, does it actually feel? Yeah. Lower? And I think there's, there's something to be said for that. Like, I don't think that's necessarily like a bad thing, you know, that it has its own contours and it and has a, a specific journey, but it, in some ways it reminded me of not musically, but in terms of the pacing uh, that, that album naked by talking heads, mm, interesting where it really starts out just super energetic and, there's uh, it's obviously not going to keep that pace the entire album, but I had similar thoughts where I, I, I kind of felt like it, it was just like dying a little bit. It, it's, it's piano music, even though what was interesting is one of the things I kind of read about was that she did not want it to be a, a piano album. That was something that her producer sort of like steered her towards where, where she, you know, her vibe was like, Hey, yeah. I'm not, this isn't supposed to be piano music. This is just the instrument I know how to write with. You know, I think the producer sort of wisely said, no, this is, this is you. This is what you sound like. So lean into it. So I, I read some of those differences in the songs and the production and as them, you know, she got a record contract very young and shortly after she sort of arrived in LA, right. And, you know, started passing out demo tapes or she only passed out one demo tape or whatever. So I kind of read that as the record company marketing machine, trying to figure out what her lane is and not being a hundred percent sure. And ultimately her lane became, you know, what the hits became, which is that kind of dark, there's a darkness plus jazz plus what I think really defines her sound. And so it was just kind of coincidence that I was listening to her latest release, fetch the bolt cutters, which I think came out in 2020. And I, I sort of, like I said, I sort of just knew her very glancingly as a, I don't know, a lovable music, musical weirdo kind of personality. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what I noticed on that record, and I think you can hear parts of it here, especially on the tracks I like the best is she really uses the piano as a percussive instrument. She loves the low end of the piano a lot. I think it's a drum forward record. That's when I like it the best too. And I think that must be informed by her. She just seems like a very percussive mind. One of the anecdotes that jumped out to me, I heard her say in an interview that when she was a kid, one of the first things she started writing Two was like she was writing score music for National Geographic programs, like a lion chasing an impala or something, and trying to get the sound of that with the sound oh, that's off. Super you cool. know? Anyway, so I, I like that. I like I like that, that element. Sounds fun. But, but yeah, I think they were I think they were trying some different things to kind of see what works for her, letting the record buying populace them guide them from there. You know? Yeah, so I, I did some pretty direct research on this, and I mean you sort of alluded to some of it. So Rob Fiona Apple landed it. You know, her big her big break was getting a demo tape to John Byron or Biron, uh, who wound up producing this record. He was, you know, the boss of Fiona Apple's of of the kid that Fiona Apple's friend was babysitting. She gave her demo tape to a friend who was babysitting a music producer's assistant. Yeah, and that's and she was signed at 16 or 17. Uh, Most of the songs on the record were written when she was 17. Uh, The ones that weren't, she wrote at 16 or younger. And and a lot of what you've talked about is sort of the brainchild of of John. Is is it Byron or Byron? How would you guys? I think it's just Brian. Brian. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> All right, well, John Bryan. Let's, that's easy. Lord Byron. Go John Bryan. 
Lord Byron. Byron. Lord Byron. Yeah, so uh, this is sort of his his brainchild, right? Like, when I say brainchild, I mean, if you look into the sort of production history of title, a lot of the things like, you know, the marimbas, the chamberlain, uh, you know, the vibraphone, the mellotron, like those sounds uh, are, are sort of coming from the producer, right? This is him sort of saying, I think that you, I think you should fill it out like this. Another interesting detail, which I didn't know until I dug in at all, is all the string arrangements are done by Van Dyke Parks, who, uh, you know, I think sort of just did an interesting sort of like uh, pop culture end run around like 2010. What was that record called, Rob? It was called like... Oh, well, he's the guy that worked with the Beach Boys a bunch. Song Cycle. Yeah, he worked with the Beach Boys and he had a famous record called like Song Cycles. Somebody gave me a copy of it. It's very interesting. But it's like... It's it, but he's like credited... Music. Isn't he credited as like the songwriter or the lyricist on Good Vibrations and a lot of those tunes? That, Something like that? that? That's possible. I don't know as much about Bandai Parks. Um, it sounds like you actually... And it looks like he's done a work with everybody from Randy Newman to Earth, Wind, and Fire I, to Captain Beefheart. Yeah. yeah, he's one of those dudes. But I, yeah, I, I remember him from when Smile got reissued or whatever. Maybe mm-hmm. that was 15 years ago or something. And the producer himself, like, he had done some pretty interesting work before working with Fiona Apple. He had worked with David Byrne on Ray Mio. I don't know if he was a producer or engineer, uh, but he was on Ray Mio. He worked on this. He was the Wallflowers producer. Excuse me. He was the manager of the Wallflowers at the time he landed Fiona Apple. So he played on one headlight and some of the other. It don't get much more 90s than that, man. Um, I'm getting getting pumped, dude. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, so this dude, uh, John Byron, uh, he definitely has, he's got chops, right? He, he'd been on the road, he'd been in the studio, he'd been in the music business, he'd scored movies, and I definitely think, and we're all alluding to it, like, you feel that sort of, like, theatrical, old-school jazz vibe with all of those sort of, like, not keyboard instruments, but they're not synthesizers either. Yeah. Um, and Rob, you're talking about how it's very percussion-forward, like drum forward, like a lot of those instruments ultimately feel more percussive, right? In this context. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really hip record. I think the production's way ahead of its time. All right. So let's you guys want to start talking through, songs yeah, or is there any songs? Yeah. You want to start burning yeah. through these? All right, cool. So I think this is a great segue from percussion forward, drum forward. Let's just roll the first track. Let's roll Sleep to Dream because this is honestly one of the things that got me the first time I heard the record. Is like, I'm turning this on. I'm ready for Shadow Boxer. That was actually the song right, that like, right. I heard. I was learning piano at the time. I was learning piano. That's sort of how I found her. I thought that was a really hip song. And then this tune came on and I just thought, like, what? It's not what I was ready for. So let's roll that real quick. I tell you how I feel, but you don't care I say tell me the truth, but you don't dare You say love is a hell you cannot bear And I say give me my back and then go there for all I care I got my feet on the ground and I don't go to sleep to dream You got your head in the clouds So this, for, I think it was the first time I had heard this song was this week and it was an I agree it was a knockout I think it's the highlight of the record for me it still feels fresh like you said the way it starts with the drums without 
sort of tonal instruments other than her voice is a, just a super cool production choice that feels very ahead of its ahead of its time. You know what it almost reminded me of the beginning of it? It reminds me a little bit of Bjork's Human Behavior, that first Bjork song. That's interesting. I can dig that. Yeah. It also kind of used percussion as almost as a melodic element. And I always thought that was an interesting choice there. And that made that made her stand out to me the first time I saw her video on late night MTV. So I think this is my favorite song on the record. I think it's, I think it's a killer. Yeah. I, my note here is that it's sonically gorgeous. It's super spacious. Her vocal is dry coming in. I mean, mm-hmm. bone dry, which is very cool. Lots of space in there. The drummer does this cool thing where the first hit. So if, if there are any drummers out there, when, when you play drums, you use the beater and you keep your feet down. So the thing that hits the drum head once you hit it, you keep it against the drum so that the drum doesn't go whoa, 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 and reverberate. The first hit that the drummer does on the kick, he hits it, lets the beater come off, and it gives this very hollow yeah, vibration. Totally. And then the second hit, so it goes boom, 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 boom. And those, yeah. those follow-up hits are super tight. And it's just, I mean, that's super in the weeds and super dorky, but man, it, uh, it, with headphones on, yeah, this, this, is, this is a there's, killer. There's like a... Uh dotted eighth like rim click and i've always wondered like is that an overdub because you can tell it's not you can tell it like it doesn't the quality of the click isn't the same every time right. you can tell it's a live take yeah. right like but i always wondered like is that an overdub or like how you know because uh, it sounds fantastic yeah dude, i <laughs> plus one to everybody so far like i have heard the song before even though i hadn't heard the album i want to say that courtney my wife has like spun this before and you know i've probably absorbed some of it as i was listening to it over the absorbed it over the years it's just badass like i think as far as like the first 30 seconds of somebody's debut i don't know that you could do it better to be honest it just had a groove that i wasn't expecting i almost felt like if somebody said hey this is like the new you know modesky martin and wood album they played that first like like i would be like yeah i buy that like that's totally and then she comes in almost with like like she's rapping almost, you know, I, I think the lyrics I think are, are what you would expect, you know, maybe from someone around that age who's, who's been through some, you know, some relationship issues. And, and I know she had some, some trauma growing up, but I think it starts off really strong. I definitely love that tune. You mentioned the lyrics and I remember as a teenager thinking one that she, I just remember thinking her her sort of vocabulary and her songwriting ability just seemed really elevated above like a 17 year old. I think, it, yeah, I agree with that for the most part. There, there were a few, I'm not going to pick apart the lyrics of songs that were written, you know, as a teenager. I do think, yes, there were like a lot of moments, but I think there was all, there were also some moments here and there where I did feel like this is somewhat reminiscent of like high school poetry, but again, that's kind of what it was. And you know, I think anybody at that age right. of yeah. their life, I know there's a lot of talk about sort of how like mature this album was and how mature her sound was. And in many ways, I think a lot of that was more the sound than the lyrics necessarily. But yeah, I mean, I think she kind of nailed it with the song for sure. And her range too. If you didn't know and you see the cover and you're going to listen to a woman sing and then she comes in and she has a very low register mm-hmm. and it's very, uh-huh. it's, somebody else said it's sultry like it's just very unexpected and yeah every everything about that yeah and and she hits the chorus fast too yeah like it, oh, it it's like four lines boom chorus and you're in yeah talking about just like sort of her presence too and her vocal presence yeah it's just very unassuming like if you saw a photo of her you would not expect this sound to come out of her 
Like, it's just, it's very low. It's very, like, there's just a lot there, even though she is very, very fair. Right. Right. Very skinny. The video, right? the, yeah, <laughs> the video for Sleep to Dream was a little, you know, it just, it, it sometimes looked off, right? Because here you have what, what mm-hmm. looks like a kid and then, you know, this, this really deep voice. And for some reason, there's a dehumidifier in the video. I wrote that too, because I had never seen, I didn't grow up with MTV. So like we we all talk about oh the video it's like I've never watched any of these videos until I'm forty so <laughs> the things I notice is that there was a there's a dehumidifier plugged in in the background very odd I mean what I like about her voice that makes me feel like she's older than she is it's partly the lyrics I like some of the lyrics and they stuck with me even from like the biggest hits but I think it's because she manages to be both have that deep voice she sounds angry too without. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Without being Alanis Morissette about it, like, <laughs> yeah. and and I mean having to scream or clip into the mic, right. like she sounds accusatory. <laughs> accusatory is a great word. It's funny that you mention that because I had, I had actually written down Alanis Morissette like very early into my listening of this, where there's that like there's not the screaming, you know, there's not like the overt anger, but like it's there and like that pain is definitely there however she sort of manifests that like Mm -hmm. you that comes across like very clearly all right cool so let's move on to what was the song that i was introduced to fiona apple through which is shadow boxer i actually don't think that this was the first single released on title i think the first no it was so yeah shadow boxer was the first single sleep to dream second criminal was third so i guess i was unaware of sleep to dream being released as a single and my experience went directly from shadow boxer to criminal so let's give a quick listen to shadow boxer and then we'll all rejoin in a moment definitely the song that sort of like pulled me into Fiona Apple in the first place. Big part of it is I was just learning piano at the time and it was like sort of That's a great, just out of my yeah, range. Yeah, right, right. That's a, I was like just out of my ability yeah. so I could chase it and I could learn how to fake it, you know? Um, so it was fun. To, and it also, it just had some chords that didn't make sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's basically in D minor, but I think it jumps to like a G minor, but it has like a B flat in the bass or something. I forget. But at the time that was like mind blowing to me. It was like, holy I've got crap. CF and G. What is all this <laughs> exactly. non-root chord yeah, overlay? Exactly. Yeah. D over B flat. What is that? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what, what do you, I mean, Rob, I know you've been working on piano. Uh, like I, what, what's your take on this? Especially like, I, I like, I love the left hand on this. That's what, that's yeah. what pulls me in. I'm really noticing the left hand. Cause I've been in my piano lessons. I've been really trying to focus on the left hand and build up the left hand. And the left hand just feels so useless sometimes, you know? And I, I think she's great at it. I think, I think it's a very well-written song. I, I just wrote down my note kind of on the first listen through Jesus. This song is beautiful. Like it, it, it hits the mark. I think one of the things she's kind of good at, which I guess is a jazz technique, is it's kind of languid delivery. Maybe a little bit behind the beat, a little bit all over the beat. You know, she just feels like she has really good control. And I guess overall, the production of the song, what it made me think of, you know, there's the reverby kind of guitar parts. There's the strings, obviously. There's maybe a, a glockenspiel in there somewhere. I'm not 100% sure. But it kind of, it made me think like it's happening on deep underwater, like in a really cool way. 
Rob, totally agree with everything. And if if I could be a hair nitpicky, because that's what this show is about, right? We like to pick things sure. apart. Man, if she had just done it half a step higher, that was my only complaint. I feel like it's just oh, a little too low where she kind of started to lose the control, I felt, a little bit. It got a little mm. pitchy at the low end. I feel like a half a step up, she would have crushed the whole thing. And then, especially the core, she can hit the cores even right, harder. Right, right, right. So that that was my, but yeah, I mean, great tune. That was my my one little piece of a criticism there. Yeah. Alex. So this for me, this was the highlight for me. Like I found this to be the, the most enjoyable song. Just the way the chords stack up. There's a the chorus to me just has a release that it just felt like masterful. Like it was like I'm going to pull you along, and then it's just going to explode into the chorus. I remember I I can't remember what I was doing when I listened to this most recently, but it was something in the kitchen, but I, I just like stopped. And when the song was over, I actually played it again because, you know, I remembered it being like an MTV single, but I hadn't really, you know, at that time in my life w- was not able to, to kind of process it in the same way or, or sort of understand like what was happening. I think it was j- just a great song. And I think the lyrics too, this is where I kind of came back to my comment earlier about, I think some of the lyrics were, really above her, you know, punching above her weight for her age at that time. But at the same time, some of them were a little bit, I wrote down, you know, what a cunning way to condescend. I really liked that. Like, I thought that just, just sort of cut in a really great way. But then there was another line that was like, the way you let your grace enrapture me. Like to me, that felt a little bit more like open mic kind of style poetry thing. Uh, so yeah. poetry slam at the coffee house. To condescend That's totally that's working backwards from the recapture me line though, right? Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. Let, let the dirty game recapture me is like, oh, I mean, you write that line, you're like, well, totally, okay, we gotta figure this totally. out now. You gotta box yourself in on that. I feel like it's almost I don't wanna say it's like a perfect pop song, but I think it has all the elements of what make a song great, honestly. I'm looking at the chord chart right now, just out of curiosity, Alan, you said like it explodes into the chorus. And what I'm noticing, we can go, we can go fun music nerd. This is a great example of uh, modal jazz. Like this song is in D Dorian. So when it hits that C chord, it's going to the one chord. It's going to the C, which is the oh, true tonic of D Dorian. Right. So, so you feel that like, it feels you like feel your home, this, this really. center, right? Like deep, D minor feels like home, right? So when you go to C, right, it, it, it like it shifts the center, but it like it opens it up, right? Because you're still you're still fundamentally in a C scale, right? So I'll be sure to stay wary of you, love, to save the pain of once my flame and twice my I mean, that's 
pretty hip, right? That's, Badass. That again, that's the sort of thing you would know if you were playing Ella Fitzgerald songs, right. you know? <laughs> like, like, I wouldn't be a big stretch, but like, this is not a sophomore in high school level song, right? Like, oh, for sure. It's it's very obvious, I think, in, in looking back and realizing that, you know, she learned to play jazz standards and, and, you know, especially very young that, I mean, these chords might even be, you know, almost taken right from a, from a jazz song, the way a lot of these chords are. It's possible. So, so we haven't talked about like her family background at all, but I do think it's relevant. Right. And that like, she is sort of like the, I think she's the third of three, but her father was an actor. Her grandparents were both, perform like vaudeville performers oh wow um let me see if i can let me see if i can find some info she comes from a line of performers right. both her siblings and her grandparents um were career musicians career performers dancers her father was an actor so it's in the blood man yeah exactly and and this is something that she would have grown up around right like you know we grew up around you know the beatles and crosby stills and nash I've got to imagine it's even different if people are playing like actually epic gypsy music around you all the time. Right. Like, so I think that's, yeah, I just think that's relevant, right. To the, she seems older than she sounds. Right. Because I think from a training standpoint, in many ways she probably is. So, I mean, that makes me think too, we haven't talked about her, her kind of persona, which, you know, not here too much to comment on that. But one of the things I remember that it, I learned about her was, when she got up at the MTV awards and said, you know, everything's bullshit and you shouldn't follow famous people. I just remember that getting a lot of press attention. And from then on, when I would see her in little snippets of interviews and my watching of a few clips of interviews this week, reinforced this, she does seem wise beyond her years. I mean, yeah, she's got a little, certainly some teenage, you know, anger or angst or whatever you want to call it, but she's, she's a very articulate kind of old soul type person. So it's it sort of fits, yeah. right? Old Soul is exactly the, what, what came to mind for me, you know, in, in listening to this. Like this album actually, in a weird way, reminded me of um, that Tom Waits album, Closing Time. I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with that, but it's very, again, not to use <laughs> sultry for, for Tom Waits, but it's it's got that like backroom bar kind of like 70s, uh, you know, ambiance that, you know, almost like quasi lounge music that it, it feels very authentic though. It doesn't feel like she's trying to like cop that sound. Like it's just embedded. It's just sort of like who she is and, and her, what her voice is. But yeah, I, I think that that maturity from a, from a musical standpoint is, is definitely there. I found the factoid we were looking for. Fiona Apple's parents uh, met while they were both cast in the Broadway musical applause. Her grandparents are a, famous big band dancer named Millicent Green, who has no you know, meaningful detail I can find on the internet. But her grandfather, uh, who met his, his wife, was a big band vocalist uh, at the time. And there, and there is some information on his work between the early 19 aughts and, uh, and, and early 30s. I thought you were going to surprise us all and say she was greatly influenced by the prodigy. <laughs> You can really yeah, hear well, it, They were contemporaries. Right. Right? <laughs> no. They might have shared a bill, you know? <laughs> yeah, she may have opened them. <laughs> that would have been the greatest show of all time. Erwin and Molly together at last. <laughs> <laughs> not, to, not to completely 
jump the shark, but I've been watching some older Simpsons episodes with my eight-year-old son. He's watching them for the first time. Yes. And I watched the one with nuts and gum together at last. Oh, nice. And I I was just like, oh, man. I thought it was said. He actually just pulls out the package and eats it. And it really... (laughs) (laughs) And then he walks off like a moron. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. So... Let's continue down the line. So, so far we've covered Sleep the Dream, Shadow Boxer. This takes us to the next big hit on the record. This is definitely, I think, the one that you know made her a household name in the 90s, which is criminal. I think both the song and the video were quite memorable. More than half of the Spotify listens on the record of this one, this one tune, Criminal. So let's give this a, tr- a listen uh, for anybody who hasn't. of the song, which I do think is more interesting than I had maybe given it credit for previously. Mm -hmm. I also read that, and I feel like I've read this so many times, so I just want to throw it to the group, that this single, this was the single written at the very end of the record because the record company was like, we don't hear a single. So why don't you just go ahead and write us a single? And they're like, okay, let me just pull that together real quick. It's like (laughs) the last song they recorded. It's this huge hit. And I feel like I've heard that anecdote so many times for so many different records. Is that true? Like, what does that say? If so, what does that say about pop songwriting thoughts or pressure or maybe true artists when they're given pressures, when they get their, uh, their most creative versus, you know, go lounge around for six months. We want to see an album. And then you come up and you say, you've got 10 minutes. (laughs) If you don't, if you don't write me a hit, I'm going to kill your family. And then they're like, all right. And then they write Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, you know, maybe it's just the nature of, uh, of artists and pressure. Yeah. Or just supreme talent in being able to whip up something like that. Because I came across the same thing where that anecdote was sort of flying around where, you know, I don't, I don't hear a single, so I can whip that up in 40, 45 minutes. I think her, her quote that she's attributed to is, is something to the effect of like, yeah, I can do that. I know how that shit works. I came across that quote a number of times and I think there is an element of like, and Phil, you and I have discussed that, that Rivers Cuomo podcast where he breaks down his like songwriting and it's very formulaic and he keeps like spreadsheets. So I think there is, there's definitely a, like a formula to writing a, a pop song, but I don't think this fits into that because I think it's great song, but it doesn't sound like anything else on the album. So I, I do think there's something to the fact that it was an afterthought and like a bolt on to the record. Hmm. But when I listen to this, I don't hear like, Oh, you just like put one, four five together and added some oohs and ahs and a bridge. And here you have a pop song. It doesn't come across to me like that. It, it yeah. It's like a, it's like a one major yeah. down. Maybe sixth. it even is one, four five, but it doesn't, it doesn't one have that. Like, down sixth. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. One, it's not. It's cause it's not. I'll be clear. That's that's, and I didn't mean it quite like that. Cause I did yeah. hear Fiona say in an interview about, I don't know if she's referring to this song or some other song, but like that she's not in the habit of being told, Oh, go write something from scratch. And then she's going to write it. It was more like go back to your unfinished notes book and decide which which idea to develop. And we need that one to be a single. And so maybe it just says something about the nature of turning an idea into 
into an obvious radio single, meaning like I can develop this song as something with, in that, that direction. It fits that. Yeah, yeah. That fits that. Totally. I mean, there are things that radio singles have like tempos you can tap your toe to, right? Like there's a sweet spot and this could have been a much slower song, right? But it's, it's sort of tempo. And then let's get into the production because I think one of the things that really sets it apart on the, is that a Mellotron or it reminds me of the strawberry fields thing. Yeah. Right. And then it even has a little strawberry fields breakdown with like little Eastern riffs at the end too. Right. A little psychedelic breakdown. James Bond horns. It's somewhere in the bridge. Just every, just God, man, what, what a, what a soundscape, you know? Well, in the bass too, I mean, she may be playing that bass line with her left hand. It was hard for me to kind of discern where that was coming from, but just the like, do, 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 do. Oh yeah. Like yeah. that I've is always thought that shit. I've always wondered if the piano is actually two takes because it's like kind of panned to one side, but there's crazy separation between the low end and the high end. Not not only in like the way she plays it, but in the, like the sonic quality of it. Hmm. There's other ways to do that. You use two microphones, right? Like, so, yeah. yeah, I think this is a really really hip tune uh, in just so many ways. Yeah, it's great. I think the one thing that I think is worth discussing to to some extent, and and it's sort of like my what I always associated with this song. Unfortunately, was like. I remember, you know, this was just mm-hmm. on heavy, heavy rotation on MTV back in the day. And I feel like the reason I had some some like misconceptions about her music were because a lot of the focus at that time was on her perceived anorexia from the video. And I remember thinking for so many years, like that was how I thought of her as an artist was like, oh, she's the, you know, super skinny chick in this like mm-hmm. in these like provocative you know, scenes in this video. And I think, I think it obviously like catapulted her to, you know, being that household name, but I, I kind of wonder if it actually worked against her in terms of establishing her as like right. the talent that she really is in like, in like the public eye. Mm, it like established a personality over, uh, over, over like her. Yeah. The, the, the persona and just the idea, like, I don't even, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to imagine that even happening today where somebody, you know, I, I feel like her weight and her, I don't even know if she had an, an eating disorder, but people talked about it a lot. And and I think she was like kind of mocked for it back then in a way that it was sort of like, you know, people used to make jokes about it. I think that like worked against her. Honestly, I think it did a little bit of a disservice to like the, the talent that she brought to the the song. I'm under the impression that she felt a little chewed up by the Hollywood machine. It took her some amount of time, a significant amount of time to put out a follow up record And I think she said publicly that she had some kind of eating disorder. I don't know if it was anorexia or not, but definitely body image issues. She was sexually assaulted when she was like a preteen. Like she had a pretty traumatic life. It was not a, yeah, it sounds like it was not a comfortable time for her at all from 10 to at least when this record came out. Right. I, I heard her say something I thought was kind of interesting about when she, that she was this sort of introverted weird in her own words kind of kid and was always struggling to get other people to understand her like understand her inner thoughts or her inner world and that she said she had this idea that when she recorded the record 
that it was going to kind of solve that problem because it would be her innermost thoughts sort of laid bare. But she said it kind of had the opposite effect where she felt very pigeonholed and like no one, people understood her even less, except more people wanted a piece of her, obviously. And so, yeah, I think it was, I think it was psychologically challenging as it would be for any 17 year old to go rocket to superstar in this way. Right? That's just crazy, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that the self-expression part of her music at that age, especially because I kind of came away with that vibe too. And listening to this, where the way it came off to me was that like, she plays music for like a necessity. Like I have to get this out, this thing that's in me and, and not so much like, Oh, this is fun. Like I like music and this sounds cool. I just, I enjoy this. It's more like I need to do this. And I, and it's really the only way I can wrestle with some of the shit that's in my head. I just felt like it had that like raw kind of authenticity of like, Hey, this is how I'm going, I'm going to you kind of wrestle with this. So the guy who directed the video for this song is now in jail. Is he in jail? <laughs> no, I don't know. Oh, I, I, I mean, man, holy. I mean, look, this went is on like to work guy, for American Apparel, right? Like, Alan, I want to say something to like you sort of you sort of alluding to like this song sort of like maybe pigeonholing her in a way because of the, the image it created. I don't know what the goal with this video was. I absolutely think it was effective to the end that it was memorable. But I mean, it is just like dripping in a weird, uncomfortable sexual sleeves, right? Like, am I am I the only one that like? No, 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 no. You're right. (laughs) I think no. I I, okay. I think there were many things going on, but one of the things that was going on it was of its time because I think what you saw in this era of the '90s MTV video making music videos had become somewhat commoditized, right? Like everyone Mm -hmm. was doing it at that point. It was clear that it was a way to market stuff. But then we're also in kind of a pre-internet, pre-pornography kind of zone where people were really pushing the limits of like what you could put. MTV was cable. A lot of people thought MTV was evil. You know, like I just think there was this like weird razor's edge of provocativeness that was happening around that time, especially on places like MTV before it kind of the wave broke and things kind of rolled back, you know? Yeah. Interesting. This guy made a bunch of fantastic music videos, though. Criminal was just one of many, including the Shake It Off video by Taylor Swift. He made the 99 Problems video for Jay-Z. He made some of the videos uh, that were part of Beyonce's Lemonade. So he kept working for quite a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's still working. His name is Mark Romanek. I'm I'm wondering Hmm. if he's done any feature films. Yeah, because a lot of those guys graduated. A lot of those folks graduated onto feature films like Sofia Coppola Mm -hmm. and Spike Jones and stuff that made some of the more memorable 90s videos, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. One hour photo, cold case. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, no, there's no, re- I mean, there's a couple of movies, but nothing that like jumps out, you know? It's not like, oh, he did Titanic. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, yeah. <laughs> I was a 17 year old boy watching that video and I felt dirty. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it didn't yeah. feel great. Right. Yeah, certainly going back and, and watching it again. I remember it being really provocative even then, but watching it now, like I felt like I it should have had like a not safe for work tag on it or something because <laughs> oh, yeah. it was really like pushing those those well, limits. Like, I mean, what we're saying here though is that like in the record, she was quite effective, and, and not just the record, but the release of the record, she was quite effective in pushing boundaries and doing it in a way that was somewhat timeless, right? Like this video still hits all the same buttons it hit 20 years ago. Like you watch it and it's both like She's beautiful, 
and arousing, but also like it feels wrong. It felt wrong then. It feels wrong now. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, the timeless <laughs> value the of, timeless. of that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. All right, let's 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 hollow some back. So two shadow boxers timeless out, too. <laughs> I want to point out two <laughs> lyrics from this from this one that, that stuck with me. The I've been I've been careless with a delicate man. I just remember like I think the first time I heard this song, I, I that lyric jumped out to me and I thought it was very well crafted. And then this time through I really enjoyed the rhyming of defense with sinned against. Mm-hmm. I just think that's not an obvious rhyme, and I, I appreciate that that's there. So great job, Fiona. Yeah, no, I I think, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think the lyrics in general on this record are fantastic. And uh, you, you, the opening line of this song really does set the character up as like, she is in control, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, intimidating. <laughs> At the de- I mean, del- careless with a delicate man. That just really, that hit home. That was a little too real for me, you know? <laughs> That's yeah. been my whole life. <laughs> yeah, heard that. Heard. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of a burn, too, of like, hey, you're weak, and I'm sorry that I... Don't really care. <laughs> affected yeah. you this much. Well, she'll break you just because she can. Exactly. It's sort of like Jolene, except it's Jolene singing, not the woman who doesn't want Jolene to crush. The mm. Jolene life. response song. Oh, that's I like good. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Thirty years <laughs> after the fact, or whatever. Heck yeah, dude. That's awesome. So, are we calling this a diss track? Is, is that is that where we are now? <laughs> a diss track. All right. So, what do we got next? Uh, I think the one we want to talk about was "Never Is a Promise." I don't know if anybody else, or maybe we're going to talk about "Carrion." I think there were a few that we we talked about as being the the final sort of wrap it up tune. I got yeah, some notes got? for "Never Is a Promise." Yeah. All right, cool. So anybody else want to give that one a spin? We agree? Yeah. Let's do it. All right, cool. Let's, let's give Never as a promise a spin. My feelings swell and stretch I see from greater heights I understand what I am still too proud to mention to you My feeling is that, as was mentioned earlier in the podcast, that the back half of the record is not as strong as the front half, partially because it's not as differentiated. It sounds a little more run-of-the-mill or like other things you might expect. It doesn't mean it's not good. It just means it doesn't feel like it fits the personality that I now, that I've come to think of Fiona Apple as having through the hits and even through the rest of her recording career so this song to me which i I believe is the only song that survived from her original demo over to the album Mm -hmm. it feels a lot less like the kind of brooding semi-weird like image of her that ultimately got marketed or where she went with it and more like a lot of different singers could be doing something like this you know she goes up into the falsetto it's just a little more like run-of-the-mill for piano songstresses again it's not saying it's bad it's just saying that it's feels a little more expected to me i think that's fair with alan 
What do you think, buddy? Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think I do feel like it's a it's a beautiful song. There's a lot of it, it's very raw. I think there's a there's clearly a lot of pain there. And I don't think that's like manufactured or I think that this is definitely like an outpouring of emotion type of song. But from a purely like listening perspective, it sort of felt like background music. And I think the the album sort of front loaded, as we've kind of alluded to a bunch of times and, and front loaded with with energy and it's not surprising that this was one of the original to your point, like this was kind of from her original demo, but it, this definitely had a little bit of that more like loungy jazz sort of feel that it, it, it wasn't like super memorable to me, but in listening to it closely, I, I did, I did feel something, but it wasn't the kind of thing where I said, Hey, I have to hear that again. I felt my finger scrolling through the track quickly. I think I got to the three minute mark. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I got to the three minute mark and I looked and I was like, oh, this is six minutes. I was like, oh, more. This is a long one. I was like, oh, more, more D minor piano. Okay. So not a good gym song, but I, I thought the, the, str- <laughs> the string arrangements were wonderful. Uh-huh. Whoever yeah. does all the, or- the orchestral stuff. That's, and the, that that's John, Van Dyke Parks. Just fantastic. Uh, w- really well done there. But yeah, you know, I agree with all you guys. You guys have little... sort of highlighted something for me. And it's interesting because, like I said, I've probably listened to this record a few times a year for the last 20 years outside of a period where I, you know, this was in heavy rotation, right? But yeah, 20 years ago. So I think you guys have sort of highlighted for me something that I missed, you guys coming in fresh, is that, you know, maybe with the exception of the first taste, which kind of has like, you know, that's, I guess that's probably in theory, like side one, song two. After the first four songs, they are sort of more piano driven, more like what you might expect, right? And I can definitely see how three or four of these songs are sort of like, they have a lot in common, right? Both in production and sort of tempo, design. I happen to think this is one of the better one of those songs. Like I definitely take this over Pale September or uh, Slow Like Honey's pretty hip. But I mean, I think you guys highlight something that, you know, I wasn't really seeing, you know, even, even upon this listen. I could imagine this song being in a Broadway musical or something like that. I mean, it's yeah, which is not just so that's saying it's not exactly what I would call hip, but it's well composed for sure. Yeah, there's just not a lot that really differentiates it, you know, as like a a must listen. He does the fluttery high stuff that differentiated it for me. That made it not so much of a low light, but just kind of a pass, a neutral tone for me. It does contain an F major seven sharp 11. So like if you're ever just, you know, you've completely changed my mind on the track. (laughs) (laughs) Can you play that chord on bass? I'm not (laughs) on bass. A few more fingers and a few more strings. It's inaccessible to, to heathens like myself. Play that on bass. What notes would you pick? You're on bass, so you have to play an F, right? That's not that's right, you can't, right. even, can't even debate because you're the bass. That's going to be a tough one. We'll work that out. All right, somehow. cool. So, I mean, yeah. unless there were, were there, I don't think, I think it was it. We didn't, we didn't want to dial into any other tunes. Right. I had my my favorite yeah, tune. Yeah. We ha- we haven't talked about it yet, but it was uh, the first taste. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which is which is track uh-huh. six. So let's oh. let's give that sure. a quick listen. But daddy, long legs, I feel that I'm finally growing weary of waiting to be consumed by you. Give me the first taste. Heaven cannot wait forever. 
it's pretty badass, right? This has hip rhythm, really hip rhythm. I think Rob alluded to that at the top, right? So the the things that I I like about this tune is where it goes. So it starts out, my God. First off, the microphone on this track is cranked, and if you're wearing good headphones, you can actually hear like her teeth like hitting her lips as she's enunciating. I mean, it is just fantastically cranked, but it works. And then when it comes into that groove that is completely out of left field, it just, man, I just threw up my, uh, my favorite song flag and declared uh, it. On it has this a one, very so, hip groove yeah. and it has some kind of like, it's almost like a steel drum thing. Yeah. There's like a marimba yeah, in there or yeah, something. That, uh, yeah. 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 That island vibes. Yeah. And it turned out, I think this this was one of the singles. I had never heard this one. So again, coming in, it's very low-key, and I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Here's another right kind of downtrodden song. And if, if you look at how it starts to how it ends, couldn't be more polar opposite. Very very cool tune. Well, why, while we're just like throwing out random ones, I think the guitar, Bring it on, the homie. guitar playing on the last track, Carrion, is fantastic. What's gone is gone and you can't bring it back around Won't do no good to hold no searchlight You can't illuminate what time is anchored down And that's gotta be the producer, right? He's a, He was the guitar player in, you know, rock bands like I don't know, I'm not gonna drop the random you know, rock bands that you haven't heard of. But like, this guy was a rocker producer. He plays on Wallflowers Records. He plays on David Byrne Records. I think he was possibly in, uh, he possibly worked with Warren Zevon at one point. Like, this guy can play and it's gotta be him on this last track. I mean, there's some cool guitar work on other tunes, but there's just a finesse to this sort of like jazz comp, you know, like no pick, like grabbing a whole box of chords. I just always was like, man, right. this is... This is some pro-level shit. Uh, and then it does the same thing that Shadow Boxer does, right? Where it leaps into the chorus. It feels like a key change that isn't there. Right. Like it feels like the record is over. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought that sort of pulled it back into some of what the early parts of the record felt like. And it, which I think makes sense to to kind of bookend it with some of those like sassier kind of tracks. So, yeah, I, I thought that I, I didn't pay hardcore attention to, to some of those uh, guitar stylings. But um, from a feel perspective, I think it You're telling me a bass player wasn't paying attention to the guitar. Well, <laughs> <laughs> my mind. Believe it. I hear enough guitar. <laughs> Let's fire up that guitar outro from tells it called carry yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Since we're all throwing out random stuff here, I'd Bring be remiss if I didn't direct your attention to something that's not on the album, but it's always been one of my favorite 
sleeper Elvis Costello tracks. And there's a YouTube video where she covers it. It's called I Want oh, You. Man. And it is the, one of the most menacing, great tunes. And Elvis Costello doesn't sing. I don't think he sings at all on it, but he's like backing her up on guitar. And she freaking kills it. She kills it. It's awesome. a great song already. I don't even know if I could find a recorded version to put on the Spotify playlist, but let's drop that YouTube clip in right here. This is, uh, yeah, great drummer on this tune, too, or at least a live take I'm checking out. Something about picking the right kind of songs for your, to put in the repertoire, right? That was, that was one of the main skills, I think, of the old, of the old jazz singers, too, is like they, they had a knowledge of what was going to sort of work for them and their voice, and then, then they could also make it their own. So it's a really, it's kind of a lost art, right? That A&R kind of art. Totally agree. All right, cool. So it sounds like we're we're sort of hitting the end run here. So let, let's let's go around the horn. I'll kick it off. I think it's been pretty clear since the beginning that I'm I'm all in on this record. I definitely think this is a a record worth to listen to before you die. Yeah, all around. I just think it's a winner. Also, I'll give a shameless plug for her newest one, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which I also thought was really fabulous. I thought it something about it sort of fit the timing of pandemic lockdown uh just like the, the the crazy sort of canned heat energy she has i'm not as familiar with what's in between adam you're up next where are you at on this one buddy i think i'm, I'm gonna steal something alan had said earlier which is just based on that first track coming out of the gate this is your debut album and sleep to dream is your tune that hits that's just awesome there are a couple, I, I want, they're not bad, but they're sleepier tunes, but that doesn't mean a song has to be frenetic the entire time. I like it. I think it's worth a listen. I, I'm, I'm going with a, a thumbs up on this one. We jumped around. Let's go with Rob. Sure. Yes. So on the topic of whether or not this belongs on that 1001 albums you must hear before you die, I would have to say yes. It's a resounding thumbs up. I think we have an example of one, I like debuts, you know, of artists that, that sort of last in the game and produce a lot of music. It's always interesting to see where they're coming from initially. I think this is an example of someone whose voice is extremely unique and needs to be heard. And that's one of the reasons I think you must listen to it. But beyond that, I think it's a great example of pairing a lot of really high quality songwriting with very high quality singing and the production which we highlighted here, which is subtle and interesting and still feels pretty modern or maybe even timeless, as we mentioned. So I think title is absolutely a must listen. Do it. Yeah. Plus one. I, I, I think it definitely belongs on the list for all the reasons mentioned. I think it's, yeah, I think she brings a unique package to the table where it's, you know, the jazz stylings, you know, one thing we didn't really get into much was, was sort of the, 
how influenced she was by hip hop to an extent where there's some of the grooves and the beats that she brings into a few of the songs. I, I think it's just, um, it's a great like melding of yeah, it, she oozes talent. I mean, there's really no way around that. And I think the production is there to match. What I really respect about her too, is I think she could have taken a different path after this album. You know, she could have gone into that like high volume. I'm going to cash in on this. Like, Clapton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and she chose not to do that where the I clap you know, methodology <laughs> as it is now. <laughs> Which, by the way, I would do that. Let's not. Yeah, let's, be, <laughs> you know, I got kids yeah. in the house. I'm um, cashing in. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, she stayed a um, a craftswoman, if that's a word. Where you know, I think she's got what maybe four other albums after this. Yeah, 100 percent on the list. All right, awesome. Well, I think it sounds like you know we've got a we've got a unanimous vote. I think we've only had a few of these so far. Right, we're maybe a, a dozen or so deep. I imagine this is probably the you know the third or fourth time we've got a unanimous vote. So there so you true. go. So of true. the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Title's a keeper. So go check it out. Title by Fiona Apple. Rob, why don't you dial up, what is it, the Arbitron 5000? The, the Albinator. Albinator. Hold on. I should be perfectly honest with you. Well, the Arbitron 5000 makes thinly sliced roast beef sandwiches. <laughs> and sadly, that is... That's at Tom's house. But <laughs> that was the Albinator. The Albinator went with Tom. He wasn't able to ship it to me, but I do have, uh, I do have the Albatron 7500. <laughs> it's way better. Okay. Communicates with Tom's Albatron <laughs> by Bluetooth so we don't get any weird overlap, and, and we can go ahead and, and spin this bad boy Are you boy talking up. about weird overlap on the roast beef? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, overlap's good when it comes to thinly sliced <laughs> roast beef sandwiches. But Album can produce the uh, Big Montana... Is that, uh, is that use your illusions one and two to come together? Okay, so we're going to spin to see what we right. are listening to next week. A drum roll, uh, please. Oh, Iggy Pop, Lust for Life. Sweet. Exciting. I have, a, I have a fun Iggy Pop story I can share Oh, later. great. Did you see him in a grocery store or something? Something. Okay. He, I don't think he, he doesn't look like he eats much. So I was going to say a grocery store. Are we talking about the same guy? True that. Well, that I think that's going to be a fun one. I'm I'm actually reasonably familiar with that one. I wonder if you guys are as well. But of course, uh, the title track is fairly well known. So I think David Bowie probably produced this. So I think I think that's right. Definitely involved. Yeah, yeah sure. sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, we look forward to that. Listen up. Yeah. So again, uh, it's been a great week. We look forward to hearing from you, talking to you uh, next week. If you have any thoughts on this week's podcast, if you like title, if you hate title, if you like us, if you hate us, shoot us an email at 1001 album complaints. That's 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. And maybe we'll read your kindly crafted email (laughs) (laughs) that's maybe (laughs) so until next time i am phil i'm rob i'm adam i'm alan boosh